Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I'm passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. Ah, these are some of my all-time favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. One of our associate faculty members is Dr. Taylor Gray. Along with teaching at IBC, Dr. Gray teaches Biblical Hebrew and Aramaic at the Israel Institute of Biblical Studies, and he is the Assistant Research Professor of Classics and Ancient Mediterranean Studies at Penn State. We are talking about his new course at IBC that was recently released called Divine Imagery in the Biblical World. Last week, we were introduced to what iconography is and how much we have learned from it, especially since the 1970s. And in that conversation, Dr. Gray mentioned the book of Amos and the Psalms, but we didn't dive into it. And of course, anytime we talk about images, iconography, and pictures while also talking about the Bible— we have to address the biblical command that says not to create an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. So I asked Dr. Gray to explain how iconography actually helps us figure out what Israelites were conceptualizing when they were thinking about or describing or writing about God. Lean in and enjoy the conversation. It's a great question. It's one I think about um, pretty regularly. One of the things that I think is so ironic about the this sort of the image ban that we get in the Bible, you know, you, you, you shall not construct a graven image. We all, we all know the commandment. What's really fascinating is that we have anthropomorphic descriptions of the deity all over the place. Like we have the texts telling us what he looks like. Uh, Ezekiel, again, is a great example, or Isaiah. The Psalms tell us that Yahweh has wings which is a very common way of depicting deities in especially Mesopotamia. But what's what's curious about the image ban is what is motivating it. Why do they sort of move in that direction? And lots of people have written about this. One possibility, one that I think is perhaps the most persuasive, is in the 6th century when the Babylonians come to Jerusalem and destroy the temple, we can't prove this. There's no evidence of this archaeologically, but it seems likely that there was a statue or multiple statues that were constructed to, to depict Yahweh. This is what everyone did in the ancient world. And so when the Babylonians came, they stole the statue of Yahweh, which is what they did to every conquered people. They would take the statue of the deity back to Babylon and they would they would sort of symbolically uh, chain up the deity in front of Marduk. And this was a way of displaying Marduk's divine supremacy. And so the biblical writers come along and they say, well, this is a problem because we can't have God enslaved to Marduk. We can't have him harmed by anything for that matter. I mean, we know that in the ancient world, if you desecrated a, a statue of a God, this was a great offense If and perhaps even it harmed the deity himself or herself. And so they don't want that. And so this is a way of getting around the problem. 
we're just going to eliminate images of the divine. That is also like assuming, and maybe also listeners to the podcast might be, um, there's something about the study of how the biblical texts were gathered together mm. and then edited. And so that is kind of assuming that maybe that wasn't something written down initially pre-Babylon, but in Babylon, as they're gathering and editing their scriptures, then they're adding in those bands. Yes. I that I think that that's entirely possible scenario because we do we do see examples at least implications that um there were images devoted to Yahweh in the Iron Age before the Neo-Babylonian period um the Ark of the Covenant is a very interesting example uh the beginning of Samuel Samuel 1 Samuel 5 through 7 has this little the whole Ark narrative this little vignette about the Ark goes on an adventure around Israel and does all sorts of mischievous things. And what's interesting is it behaves exactly like an image would in in other ancient cultures. There's there's no difference. And the Philistines even say when they encounter it, a god has entered into the camp. I mean, they they recognize the the power of this thing. And and so um it's no surprise maybe that the ark sort of falls out of the narrative once the temple is constructed. We don't have any more stories of the ark going around. It just sort of disappears once David brings it. And so the ark is an example in some of the psalms we have we have these descriptions of the psalmists desiring to stand in the presence of the lord and gaze upon his face i mean we could interpret this metaphorically absolutely but when we look at the broader context of ritual texts from the ancient near east this is how they talk about wanting to see the deity the statue and so the psalmists are sort of saying something maybe similar and other psalms talk about you know, describe Yahweh entering into the temple and in this sort of celebratory sort of fashion. And we know that in the case of like uh, Mesopotamia, the, the Akitu festival in, in Babylon, we had this whole procession with the, with the statue of Marduk and, and they talk about the statue in a very similar way in this sort of processional sort of way. And so there are implications, though not explicit, that, that there might have been uh, a statue at one time. But for the most part, it looks like most of the biblical texts are, are a little uncomfortable with it. Maybe the only other case is a standing stone. And I mean, the, the case of Jacob in, in Genesis 28 is, is, the, is a great example of this. But um, I mean, Hosea and, and Micah decry Judah and Israel for having images of the deity. Um, so they were there. It's just whether or not they were officially allowed, I guess, is probably the way, the way to put it. It is interesting because when when we go to ancient sites, um, there's an ancient site in the northern part of Israel called Dan. And outside of the Israelite gate of Dan, there's an altar with several of these standing stones. And so this kind of begs this question, because there are other places in the text where it seems like when we think of Joshua and the Israelites crossing the Jordan River, there's actually a command to pick up stones and pile stones. May they serve as a memorial to this great event. And that happens often where the stone is just something odd, something different on the horizon line to provoke your memory. What is so different about a standing stone, a standing stone in terms of like the standing stones, the multiple stones that are right next to an altar that are at Dan? How are they 
representing the divine in a different way? Like how are they sacred objects? That's a interesting question. I think the trickiest thing about standing stones is they don't have inscriptions and they don't have depictions. (laughs) They're just rocks. (laughs) So it's like, we look at them and they're like, well, this could mean anything. So it's tricky. And a lot of people have tried to classify the way and the way in which they're configured and where they're, where they're located, you know, are they in a, are they in a temple niche in the case of like Arad, for example, we, we have these ritually buried iron age Matsevot with, there are two of them and there are altars and it's, and they're in the niche of the temple. We're probably talking about deities here, but in the case of standing stones, let's say outside a city gate, maybe we're talking about stones that are dedicated to say an event, like in the case of Joshua, the crossing of the Jordan, or, you know, uh, in the case of the Sinai event representing the 12 tribes of Israel or whatever. Um, so, so there, there are cases where these things serve as an aid, a witness, um, but in other cases, it's very clear that they're they're meant to depict a divine presence, and the whole notion of a Beit El uh, comes up in, in Genesis 28. So, I mean, it's clear that these things are what we say in the business, poly, polysamous. They have multiple meanings, um, and it really depends on uh, where where they are and, and sort of how many of, of them are around. But um, sometimes we, we we don't know. But I mean, it's... It's not entirely clear why the standing stone is so prevalent. I mean, it, it's prevalent a, a across human culture or human civilization around around the globe. But it, it seems kind of clear from archaeological uh, con- controlled excavations, anyway, that uh, these standing stones are often used in rural contexts. Um, we even have cases in in Mari from from the old Babylonian period where uh, we know that there are these like no, semi nomadic tribes that use these instead of cultic statuary because they don't they don't they they don't have the means to construct a statue so they use a stone instead and so it looks like this is maybe partly where the the tradition comes from but i mean yeah the it it's a convenient object and and it there's something about the the stone that it that sort of invokes concepts of the divine this this like enduring eternal non-organic sort of object really can serves as a visual metaphor a physical metaphor even and maybe not even a metaphor, uh, an actual sort of representation of what God is. And our depictions are not just of gods and goddesses, but through ancient Near Eastern iconography, we can maybe get a good picture of what the biblical writers were thinking of when they say that they see cherubim and they see seraphim. Can you go through what those two types of creatures are as not renaissance paintings (laughs) yeah sure sure so the 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 case of the the caravim is is really interesting because other traditions like in mesopotamia or egypt we have technical terms or technical names proper names for all sorts of protective spirits the Bible does not have this diverse vocabulary in the same way. We have a couple of titles associated with lesser divine beings, the Malakim, the messengers, the Hasatan, whatever he is, the, the accuser or whatever it is, and then the Keravim and the Seraphim, and maybe Ezekiel's Chayot, but those get associated with the, the Keravim. So, I mean, the point is, is that we don't have a div- as much of a diversity. So when it comes to interpreting them, it, it gets a little bit trickier. Uh, we have depictions of them that sa- that make them sound far more anthropomorphic. 
And we have examples of these lesser divine beings that are anthropomorphic uh, in iconography. There's a very famous example uh, from Tel Halaf in, in, in Turkey, uh, where we have uh, these sort of winged human-like beings uh, that are serving the gods. And, and the Apkalu or another example in, in Mesopotamia. So th those could be what they are. They could be humans with wings. Um, not far from later depictions, but not as cute, far more terrifying. Uh, <laughs> but then in other cases, it seems like the Kerovim are far more composite. And Ezekiel's Chayot are a good example of this. At the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, we get these descriptions of these very composite creatures that multiple, many four faces, lots of wings and crazy looking bodies. And these sound a lot like the Lamasu in Mesopotamia, these protective genie or these protective creatures that sort of guard palaces. And if you've ever been to the British Museum or the Louvre, or honestly, if you've ever seen the cover of any book about the ancient Near East, you've probably seen a picture of these <laughs> that's, things. That's they, they, right. <laughs> they are I mean, the famous ones famous. to use because they're like super striking. And it reminds Harry. you of like Harry Potter-ish type things. Yes, they're very chimera-like. I mean, they they often have uh, the body of a bull, the head of a human, and the wings of a griffin or the wings of a eagle or whatever. Um, and sort of, there's sort of these sphinx-like creatures. And so, this is oftentimes the direction most scholars go when they talk about the Kerovim. They say, in the Bible, this is probably what we're talking about. We're talking about these sort of sphinx-like creatures maybe a couple of exceptions because of the the terminology and the it, the way it's used. Um the seraphim are I think far more fascinating and and compelling uh divine creatures. So the this is not my original argument. This has been made by other scholars, but the the general line of thinking at at this point um in iconographic studies is that the seraphim that show up in Isaiah 6 are winged snakes. And this has to do with the etymology of the word seraphim, uh, the masculine plural of, a, of the form seraph, to burn. And uh, these, these uh, creatures first show up in the book of Numbers, uh, where they, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness and, and they do Israelite things where they rebel and they get all upset about something because they want to go back to Egypt. And, and Yahweh sends poisonous snakes to... to, 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 to uh, <laughs> I don't know, to kill some of the Israelites. I mean, yeah. that's what happens. Yeah. And then yeah. so, but some of them um, are, uh, their name literally means to burn, which matches sort of the description in, in Isaiah. And the constellation of, of texts, not just in Numbers, but some other examples in, in the book of Isaiah, not just Isaiah 6 and, and in the book of Deuteronomy, indicate that we're dealing with a serpentine-like creature. And when we look at the iconography from Iron Age Israel, specifically the 8th and 7th centuries, we see an image that is ubiquitous, especially in Judahite iconography, iconography from, from the southern part of Israel. And it is a winged snake. They have two wings. They have four wings. We don't have any examples of six-winged ones like we get in, in the uh, story in Isaiah. But I, I think we can safely say that we're probably dealing with a winged snake of some kind. And this image comes from Egyptian, um, Egyptian religious traditions. Uh, this, this image is 
closely associated with the sun god. And it just so happens that in this period in Iron Age Israel, we see this really interesting solar interpretation of the deity too. So not only do we get this uh, winged serpent associated with the sun god, but it appears that the god of Judah, probably Yahweh, is also imagined as a as a solar deity. The now relatively well-known Hezekiah seal has a winged sun disc on it and a winged scarab. Uh, there we have all these jar seals from from this period as well that have winged scarabs and winged suns. Um, and so there's this uh, anyway, so the the seraphim, most likely winged serpents. What's really interesting, too, is this continues uh, throughout sort of ancient Near Eastern lore. There's a story about Ashurbanipal when he travels to Egypt. He says he sees these things. He says he sees flying snakes in the desert on his way to Egypt. Herodotus tells us the same thing. I don't know what they're seeing, but apparently the Israelites know about winged sna- snakes in the Sinai and in the in the, the desert, and um, so do Herodotus and Ashurbanipal. <laughs> <laughs> And whether or not we ever get a skeleton of such a creature to prove that it exists, there are snakes with venom that burns. And so you can kind of see this association of burning venom with a snake with like generations and generations of mythology, the role that the snake played in cultures. And so it's an interesting like putting those things all together. Maybe just in closing, we should talk about, okay, so we have images and then we have text, but what happens when we have text with image? And this is where things get a little sticky and you do a great job in your class. And so people who want to dive into this a lot more should take your class at IBC. But we have pottery in particular that has drawings on it. There's figurines of sorts. It's a little hard for a modern untrained eye to be looking at these ancient things and know what they represent. But we do have several pictures like that, iconography of sorts, matched with words, Yahweh and his Asherah. Mm -hmm. What what do we do with that? (laughs) Yeah, uh, I mean, I feel like people who have been trying to answer that question uh, for, let's say, like almost the last... 45 years have maintained their jobs trying to (laughs) answer this question. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, so I think we can, we can step back from the, the specific example of Kuntiladajrud for just a moment to talk about sort of the broader context of this text image issue in the study of iconography more generally. And this is a continual methodological question in art history. What is the relationship between a text that accompanies an image. Does it interpret the text or the image for you? Does Or does the text add something to the image? Are they distinct, independent, or are they mutually informative? And of course, I mean, the answer, the simple answer is, well, it depends on what the context of the thing it is we're studying. Um, and, you know, there, there are all sorts of fun postmodern examples where you see this this attempt to sort of break down the relationship between the text and the image. And um, there, there are modern uh, Assyriologists and art historians who are working on this, um, on this very topic. Irene Winter has written a lot about this, on the relationship between the text and the image, especially in Mesopotamia. And 
whether the text actually helps us, or sometimes it might hinder our interpretation. So it's important to remember that, or to have that sort of background going to Kuntilad Rude and trying to interpret um, what's going on there. So the Pithoi have all of these images, and then we have these blessings, and they mention Yahweh and his Asherah. As you can imagine, as you know, when these things were published initially, the, the response was, we are going to take the sort of the entities that are mentioned in the inscription or in the blessings, and we're going to correspond them to the uh, images. And lo and behold, it doesn't quite work out because there are more Im- there are more figures in the images than there are mentioned in the text. And so is Yahweh depicted twice? Is Asherah here and Asherah over there? Or is Asherah nowhere? You know, there, there are all these weird questions that get asked. And, and I think this has to do with, you know, the the philological background of, of much of the discipline. But Kuntiladaj Rud is very interesting uh, because, at least to my mind, uh, we have to entertain the possibility that the inscription and the image are independent. We have an image uh, or a series of images, you know, like on, on the back of some of the pithoi, we have uh, depictions of a stylized tree and lions and, and, uh, and, and deer. And th- these are often associated with the goddess um, in Levantine iconography, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the image is just a, a sort of a pictorial correlation with with the text. It could just very well be someone wrote this blessing, and then someone else came along later and then drew a picture, or vice versa. And so th- this is kind of the the, the tricky question with uh, with Kuntiladaj Rud. What is clear is that we have imagery that is well attested in Levantine Egyptian art uh, in this period, the stylized tree and the lion, both are commonly associated with the goddess. We have depictions of the god Bess, who is very, very popular in this period. We have amulets from all over Southern Israel um, depicting this god. Uh, He's very, very popular. And so the images alone, the the seated figure on the throne holding the thing that might be a harp is the easily the biggest question. Who Who is this character? And is this Asherah? Is it not? Is it a worshiper? Who knows? But uh, we can attest some of, the, some of the imagery. So the text is very clear that we also have multiple instantiations or localized forms of, of Yahweh. We have Yahweh of Timon or Yahweh of the South and Yahweh of Samaria. So we have a, an interesting... Um, thing going on with different variants of the of the god of of israel and then um we have reference to a cultic object slash goddess that is well known for from a thousand years earlier um asherah or athirat at ugarit um the great mother goddess of, of the canaanite pantheon and there are a lot of people who get hung up on uh, the use of the pronominal suffix in in regard to her name, because it's Yahweh and his Asherah. And there's this whole, you know, linguistic debate about, can you do this with a proper name and all this sort of stuff? And into my mind, um, and I'm not the only one to to think this way, but the, the use of the pronoun is sort of irrelevant. Uh, a cultic object and a deity are more or less the same thing, especially uh, on, a, on a colloquial level. You know, maybe theologically, if we wanted to get really philosophical about this, we could say, well, there are some distinctions, but I mean, the image and the, and the deity are virtually in, indistinguishable. And so the fact that Asherah is mentioned uh, in the inscription indicates that she's a part of this cultic context, you know? And so 
how we relate the image in the text is is one thing, but that both indicate a very rich religious context in 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 this period of Israel, uh, Southern Israelite or Judahite history. Yeah, which even in that context, the the actual location of it is so far south from anything really related to the Judahite kingdom. It's it's almost right. more connected to trade routes going into Egypt, um, and so. It is this interesting, they're so, like, whoever is there, they're so far on the margin. Mm -hmm. You know, what does this say? Is it just this one singular group that's very, very, very far away from Jerusalem? Or, again, all of these questions that we have when we find these kinds of artifacts. Yeah, I I think that, you know, just a side note about Kuntila Dajrud, or even just some of the material culture stuff that we've been talking about, especially minor art like seals or amulets it's really hard to know how representative some of these things are for the the larger population and the same goes for the biblical literature we just don't have the data to be able to say everyone was reading deuteronomy and everyone thought this way and there were these some people down in the desert who had who were talking about yahweh in this weird way with asherah and they were you know bad 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 but we 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 just don't have the the evidence to sort of know exactly what these people are thinking. All we can say is, you know, we have images that, you know, transcend multiple uh, periods of time and, you know, they're consistently found or this is unique and the same is true with texts. And and to what extent that represents the broader cultural context is hard to know. So at the end of the day, what is your favorite way to persuade people to spend time actually looking at iconography while they're reading their Bible? I think the most valuable thing iconography provides is a window, a visual window into the world of ancient Israel. It is so nice and liberating to be able to look into the world and sort of imagine along with the ancients when we're talking about from anything like the seraphim to the structure of the cosmos. I mean, it is just really, really enlightening. Um, and we really get a sense of how far removed we are. You know, it's sort of the same experience when you learn biblical Hebrew or biblical Greek for the first time and you try and interpret these texts and you realize like, whoa, this is way different. And the same is true when you start looking at the ways that they depict ideas like their gods or sacred space. This is a very, this is a very different world. And it the images really, really highlight that. It is impossible for us to actually get inside the heads of these ancient people, but this class from Dr. Gray is like finding a small little crack in the window to try to enter into what they were thinking. Conversations like this are common here at IBC, whether in the wide variety of roundtable talks with scholars from around the world, or perhaps in our many courses. If you have not yet connected with the Israel Bible Center, consider joining our growing international group of students. From the comfort of your home and at your own pace, you can take classes and within a year, earn a certificate in Jewish context and culture. Thank you, Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. 